Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today on a cooler, squally day, just on the fringes, on the edge lands of the Lake District National Park with author illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Well, it's great to be back again, David. So it's been a week or so since we were last together. Lovely to be down here at Millam, which is a great little place. I've only been here once before, but it's by the Dudden Estuary, and that is a beautiful estuary. So it's a fabulous place to come and explore. You refer to our last podcast. In some ways, we're worlds apart here. Not only was it a wonderful summer's day then, and it really isn't today, that was the real heart of Borodale, wasn't it, Mark? It was green country, it was fell country. Here, well, we're in a Tesco car park. And this is an old industrial town, but actually there are similarities too, not least mining. Yeah, indeed. This town is very much an industrial town. I think it's known as the Iron Town. It had a heyday, which is now past, but it's still a thriving little place and it buzzes and it buzzes probably as much to the memory of one particular person. Right, you give a a hint there, Mark, of our podcast for today. Millen put on the map largely by one man, a really important poet, author, and a person who adored the Cumbrian landscapes. Who was that man? Norman Nicholson. The sense of place he had set him apart among many Cumbrian writers and he was very much a man of his time. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of interesting things I'm looking forward to exploring today. You did put us on the map, but can you be a bit more specific? For people who don't know this neck of the woods particularly, where exactly are we? Well, people know about Barrow and Furness, which stretches to the south of here, in a sense, across the eastern side of the estuary. Great Broughton Moor intervening. But here we're on that furthest peninsula, Blunt Peninsula, south of Black Coombe. It's a maritime limit of Lakeland. That's right, yeah. It sits below Black Coombe, doesn't it? And also, critically, most people are probably aware of it, it's just off the coastal road that you would use to get to, say, Wasdale, Esdale, um, from the South Lakes. And there's a little signpost off to Millen, which... I've never before taken, so <laughs> pretty, a first for me. A pretty innocent little road, you would think you weren't going anywhere until you come here and you feel the buzz of a place, yeah. and uh, it is a place that uh, deserves to be understood and appreciated, and I'm hoping our guest today will help us discover that. Who's our guest, Mark? Well, Dr David Cooper from Manchester Metropolitan University. He has a particular special feel for this town and this man in question. Right, well, let's go and meet David on the other side of the Tesco car park. Well, we're in the Tesco car park, as I suggested, which is an unusual circumstance for me in the context of Country Stride to be talking about a landscape of this nature. But I'm in the lovely company of Dr. David Cooper. 
Can you tell me a little bit about yourself, where you come from, and what you do? Afternoon, Mark. Well, yeah, it is exciting to be here in Millham, and it's exciting to be in the Tesco car park with the trolleys going up behind us. Yeah, I'm Dr David Cooper, and I teach English literature at Manchester Metropolitan University. And I live in Lancaster. I can see Black Coombe, which is just above us here in Millham, from my daughter's bedroom. So if I crane my neck out of her bedroom in Lancaster, I can see Black Coombe. But I haven't been here for quite some time. So today is quite exciting after, after lockdown to travel over from Lancaster up here to Millham. And I've spent quite a lot of my working life thinking about and reading the poetry of Norman Nicholson, who's so synonymous with this place that we find ourselves in today. This is all about Norman Nicholson today. And... Can you give me a little bit of a feel for who he was? Sure. Norman Nicholson, in my view, is one of the sort of great forgotten poets of the 20th century, and I think he is the great poet of Cumbria after William Wordsworth. He was the writer of five volumes of poetry published by Faber and Faber, the big prestigious publishers in London, and author of numerous topographical works, plays, a whole bunch of criticism about writers, some of whom are canonical and some of whom have been forgotten a bit over time. I guess to use a sort of an old phrase, he was a sort of a man of letters, really, working across a lot of different forms. Also wrote this brilliant autobiography called Wednesday Early Closing, he was a poet of place, and I think that was the defining characteristic of his work. What we have here is somebody who caught the feeling of the edgeland of what we call the Lake District, but from this perspective. Well, definitely, and it's interesting you use the word edgeland because I think that's a term that's become quite voguish over the past decade or so, and quite popular in terms of literary writing. I don't think it's a term that Nicholson uses a great deal of at all, but that's what he does. He captures the in-betweenness of the place that we find ourselves in between the Irish Sea, just over there, and the Lake District Fells, which are just over in the other direction. And he was really interested in what I think was a sort of quite a complicated place, which these different worlds and these different landscapes and these different histories seemingly collide. And I think Edgeland really encapsulates that. And to which I might ask the question, how did you personally find Norman Nicholson? I spent several years working at the Wordsworth Trust in Grasmere, and there I was surrounded by Wordsworth's poetry, surrounded by scholars working on Wordsworth's poetry. And just one lunchtime, I walked along Stop Lane into the centre of Grasmere, went to Sam Reed Bookshop. Who wouldn't? <laughs> Who wouldn't? There might be some self mythologisation going on here, but I think this was the story. And I went into Sam Reed's, and I was looking at the shelves of poetry. I saw this really slim volume of poetry by Norman Nicholson, took it off the shelf, just read a couple of poems bought the book, went home, and suddenly became obsessed with this figure, Nicholson. I didn't know who he was at that point. I didn't know, I think I'd vaguely heard Millam. I didn't really know where it was. I think what I was really interested in was this question, if we think about Cumbrian um, literature in general, what came after Wordsworth? I knew about Ruskin, knew about Beatrix Potter, but in poetry, we always thought, who came after Wordsworth? And for me, Nicholson was a writer who had something to say but he was one of the first writers to actually wrestle with what you might call the problem of Wordsworth how do you write about the Cumbrian landscape when it's Wordsworth has seemingly written about every rock and stone and tree well that set the scene David I just can't wait to go and see where Norman Nicholson came from where he lived which is 14 St George's Terrace Well, you can tell we're in a coastal setting with the gulls chirping in the background. Although I don't know gulls chirp. But anyway, we'll do a bit of chirping ourselves, David. I've got to imagine this place as a rural place. 
And I'd like to be able to get a bit of a picture of it as an agricultural pastoral landscape before industrialisation. Have you got any sense of that, David? I've always been really interested and obsessed with the story of this particular place. Up until the um, middle of the 19th century, it was just a rural community right on the peninsula, uh, right at the end of the Duddon Valley. And it was a sleepy agricultural community, quite sparsely populated. Mm -hmm. And then in the middle of the 19th century, that was all to change with the discovery of hematite or like incredibly rich deposits. And suddenly this sleepy pastoral community was industrialized very, very quickly. There was this growth, this explosion, really, in terms of the industry that was unfolding here, but also, of course, the people, the fact that there was this influx of people. I know there was a lot of movement from Cornwall, there was movement from Wales, Ireland as well, so there was people coming here for work, and suddenly this was a prosperous, growing town, and it was an industrial town rather than the, the pastoral village that it had been previously. You have this hematite which had to be smelted. Inevitably that brings in to the mix coal. So that has to be brought here somehow. And initially I suppose it comes down from Workington area on horses and carts before of course along comes the railway. And therefore that brings in the ironworks. They've got the mines and they've got the ironworks pretty much Everyone in the town would have been employed via the iron industry in some way. And then you had this massive explosion in terms of prosperity, like I said before. And you could see that in terms of the buildings in the town as well. So not far from where we are now, there was suddenly like a whole row of banks, really grand buildings. The architecture of the town was all then emerging from this explosion of the iron industry. And the right to that, I'm interested in Norman Nicholson. He knew about the history of that movement from the pastoral to the industrial and it was there in the sort of the fabric of the town but it was also there in the, the history of his own family because inevitably his family had worked in the iron industry. It was, it was embedded in the soul of the society. Yeah, so Nicholson, if he looks back on his family history, were three generations of his family who had worked in the mines. And he also talks about how his ancestors had moved here for work, so they came here to seek the riches, if you like, that were here in Millham. And in his writing, he talks a lot about family members, including his Uncle Jack, quite a prominent figure in the community, a really proficient sportsman, played for Millham cricket, I think played rugby as well, who sort of died tragically young. So there's this sense of the iron industry giving, but there's also this sense to think of the iron industry taking away as well. Well, we got a bit of a feel for it now. We ought to go and find a little bit more about the geography of this place in terms of the Nicholson family. Well, like this car just going past us now, we've just turned into St George's Terrace and between Home and Soul, which is a haberdashery of some sort, and Double T Tools Hardware is a very modest little property. It's got a brick gable at the top of it, very modest in every dimension. But what catches the eye is a blue plaque to Norman Nicholson. Well, we're here in St George's Terrace, which is pretty much in the centre of the town of Millham. The Market Square is right at the top of this road. And St George's Terrace, I think originally these were houses mm -hmm. and then over time they got converted into shops. And the house that we're looking at now is 14 St George's Terrace, like you say. And that was where Nicholson spent virtually all of his life, all but 20 months of his life was spent in that property just across the road. That is stunning. And when he was a lad, his father's business was in, in that building. He was a gentleman's outfitter and he had a really important role in the town, had this sort of slightly in-between social status as well. So if we think about Nicholson's position 
within the community. His father wasn't working in the mines, had this gentleman's outfitter and had this almost like this, this middle class position within the town. And what I find really curious actually, just as a bit of an aside, I do know that Nicholson lived in that side of the street. On this side of the street when Nicholson was growing up was a boy called Montague Slater. And Montague Slater wrote the libretto for Peter Grimes by Benjamin Britten. What an amazing thought. This is on the western side of the street. I've always been really fascinated by this street for St George's Terrace. We had these two people, two great writers, two great artists. And I think the contrast is quite marked. So Montague Slater left Millen, went to have this sort of metropolitan life and this quite glamorous life in London. Nicholson my man if you like he very much stayed apart from a brief period where he left Millen like I say he spent his life in this particular property I look up at that modest little gable up there in the roof space I imagine him sitting in there in the gloomy light well definitely that room that we're looking at which is on the third floor it's a little sort of um, attic space so in his most famous poem The Potgeranium he talks about having sort of spent his life here and he looks out of that window and looks across over the roofs of the town and looks across to the fells this, this is his world this building that we're looking at is so central to the whole of Nicholson's life but also really integral to his writing and when he was a child, the fluctuations of the town were up and down, and I think they had better years in terms of the mining industry, and then they had worse years. But it was still incredibly sort of thriving, bustling space that Nicholson entered into. Now, he was born in 1914, which is coincident with my own father's birth. These were troubled times. We were, so 1914, obviously, was the start of the First World War, so that was the world that Nicholson was being born into. But it was also more local sadness, if you like, or local problems. And by that, I mean that Nicholson's parents, Joseph and Edith, they had sadness in their own life, so Nicholson had an older brother who died in infancy. Um, I think it was Harold. And then a few years later, several members of the Nicholson family suffered with the Spanish flu. And obviously, we're thinking about this just over 100 years on in the age of COVID. And a lot has been written and thought about Spanish flu over the past 18 months or so. We can't underestimate the significance of that. The Spanish flu was ripping through the town, if you like. Swept through and millions died from that. So Norman came into a world absolutely broken in many respects, but he saw his way through it. Well, he did, but I think a really significant moment in his life was the death of his mother when Nicholson was, was a young boy. So his mother dies, and subsequently Nicholson's father remarries. But that moment, I think, is significant in terms of his story as a man, but it's also absolutely crucial to his writing as well, really, I think. You can sort of think about that, that early loss, and actually see there is this sort of thread of sadness running through the writing. come up to St George's Terrace and we come up to this open space which will have been the marketplace I presume and ahead of us to the south there's two at least if not three very substantial and handsome buildings definitely the middle one and the right hand buildings are no longer occupied but these were the banks I believe and to my right is the old market house two stories with a dome top with a clock on it that was the market house. Can you tell us a little bit more about this, David? We're in the centre of things here today. There's a lot of traffic going by, but it would have been very much the centre of things in the Millen that Nicholson grew up in. And he writes a lot in later life. He looks back on his childhood and remembers 
looking at the sort of the activity here, the hyperactivity of the centre of the town. There's a particular passage in one of his books, Provincial Pleasures, where Nicholson looks out of his attic window in 14 St George's Terrace and he looks out and can see all the revellers here on New Year's Eve and can hear them all and he goes early to bed. He wants to wake up with a clear head, he says, on New Year's Day. But we get a real sense of this being, the, let's say, the centre of things. Norman will have observed this bustling marketplace and he was a, quite a lively young lad, really, wasn't he, David? Well, he was, and then we were talking before about like the sadness in his early life and the death of his mother. There was a real sort of happiness in his childhood as well, and we get that through his own writing, um, his own published writing, also through some of his own private correspondence. We also get it more recently in Kathleen Jones's brilliant biography of Norman Nicholson, and we get a sense of him playing this full and active role within the community, um, being quite a performer as a, as a young man, and and very very bright. He was destined, everyone thought, for this glittering academic career in the sense that everyone assumed he'd go off to university perhaps become a teacher I think that's what they thought there was this performative element always with Nicholson even as a child he liked performing he liked speaking he liked orating and also he was very keenly and heavily involved with the church I understand his father remarried and through his, his stepmother he became really involved with the Methodist church. It's really important to stress the role that the church played or the churches played in everyday social life of the town as well. People who worked in industrial settings valued their Sundays, hymn singing and that sort of thing. So you can understand almost recreation of, of church had a role there was a commitment to God running right through his life although later on he, his family had been sort of C of E then through his stepmother he became um, sort of involved in the Methodist church and then later on he went back to the Church of England So we got a, a lovely picture of this lively lad who'd got involved with all sorts of things his life was stretching ahead of him but at the age of 14 something struck yeah, and this is a really significant moment. In his mid-teens, he contracted tuberculosis. And at this particular point in time, contracting tuberculosis was essentially a death sentence for lots of people. And Nicholson's father spoke to a local doctor, and the local doctor's advice to Nicholson senior so joseph nicholson was very clear he said if you wanted your son to recover the best thing that you could do is to dig into your personal savings and pay for him to go to a private sanatorium rather than a public sanatorium in cumbria so that's what joseph nicholson did he went into his savings and paid for his son to make the long and at that point and still is today quite epic journey south to the new forest and he went to a sanatorium in a um, place called Linford in the New Forest. And initially, the hope was that he'd be there for six months. So off he went. He went with his stepmother. And he left this street, this community of Millham. It's all that he'd known, this very sort of tightly knit, close community on the edge of the, the, the Lake District, and made that journey south. Initially, it was thought he'd only be there for six months. But as we'll probably find out, it was actually longer than that. Well, we are very fortunate. We've come to an eminence above the town. I can see a train, two carriages coming along the Cumbria coastline, heading towards the town. I've got this wonderful open aspect on the site of smeltworks of the hematite mine. I can look across the great estuary of the Duddon and to my right, which is to the far south, I can see structures associated with Barrow and Furness, and then across the way, just a little above that, Ascombe in Furness. And then the great moorland slopes of Broughton Moor, which are associated with Burlington quarries. And then 
sunlight and cloud linger over the Coniston Fells, but Sickle Pike is very visible, a very definite little summit. And then the Dudden Valley, the fells leading up towards Black Coombe, which is Captain Cloud, and then right in front of me, the town, the compact town of Millam itself, dominated by the spire of the church. And we'll go there shortly. David, can you give me a little bit of perspective on this industrial site? I think the last time I came up here was with my dad, oh, who, um, and my dad died a few years ago, and the last time I came up here was maybe about five years ago. So coming back and sort of retracing that steps, and I remember bringing him up here, when suddenly you had this vista just opening up, this huge expanse of the Dudden Estuary just in, in front of us. And so it's great to be back here today, and like you say, with the shade, clouds over Black Coombe as well. The sun is lighting up all the mosses, the pastures, the woodlands. This marries the mountains and the sea. I've got in my hands a book by um, the local historian um, Bill Myers called Millam Remembered. And I've got in front of me, which is a black and white photograph of the Millam Ironworks and the landscape which is behind us as, as we're talking. It's this sort of almost like this lunar landscape and that would have been the site of the ironworks. And in front of me, we get a sense of the sort of the heavy industry that would have been here, the sort of sheer scale of railways um, sort of leading into the ironworks. We get silos. We also get a sense of a landscape which has been quite brutalised in a way. Here we are, of course, as I say, in a very spacious, airy situation, and I'm soaking up the warm sunlight here. Norman was in the New Forest on the edge of it. He's also seeking fresh air, but he was there a little longer than was expected. Like I said before, he made that epic journey down to, to Linford, and he ended up spending, I think it was 20 months in total, in the sanatorium and the New Forest. And it was this incredibly difficult period of his life, understandably, but it was also incredibly formative as well, if you think about the growth of his imagination. Wordsworth in style, the growth of the, the poetic imagination. And there he was in bed for most of the time with the windows just wide open to the elements. He was there in bed, not moving, he was immobile, but he looked out of that window, he felt the wind coming in through that gap and he noticed, he looked out of that window and he noticed, he noticed the changing of the seasons, he noticed light, he noticed shade and I think that is really important if we think a bit about his poetry later on because it came in my estimation, quite a painterly poet, he had like this painterly attentiveness to light and shade and, and detail and texture and so those months in the sanatorium are absolutely crucial to that. At the same time, he was reading a lot. What else was there to do? He got tired very easily, but he read a lot. He became a voracious reader. And he also did make friends there. So from this quite dark start, and of course it was a terrible time in lots of ways, but it was also really formative. Nicholson himself looked back, so later on in his life, in his autobiography, he then talks about that period of time that he spent in the sanatorium. And he talks about the return journey to Milham. At the beginning of the time in the sanatorium, it would have been incredibly traumatic to be moved from Milham all the way down down there to the New Forest. But after those 20 months, he returns to Millam with real feelings of ambivalence. In one sense, there's a homecoming. Millam was, was his home, and as he looks across to Black Coombe, he thinks he is going home, but he wasn't quite sure what he was returning to and whether he still belonged in this particular place. You can see that that would be an issue, yeah, especially for a bright lad who saw a bigger world. His return, he came to a different kind of Millam, in a sense. It had even those short months begun a decline 
sort of sprinkling a bit of poetic license there in the sense that I wouldn't say it would have changed that much in that short time but I think we've got the story of this long decline of the town of the industry so he's coming back in the 1930s it's not the town that it had been 20 years earlier and it certainly wasn't the town that it had been like in the 1870s 1880s there's this narrative of a slow decline in terms of industry and we know um, from Bill Meyer's book by the 1950s so slightly later as he puts it it was a sort of slight novelty for people in Millham to be working in the iron industry 50 years earlier everyone would have been connected with the iron industry in, in some way so Nicholson is returning to this place which is undergoing this period of decline in industrial terms and I think he's just not quite sure what to make of it really he's come back what did his future hold for him? It was certainly wasn't going to be working in the iron industry. He was condemned to a life of ill health, really, and fragility after his TB. And so what what came next? And he hadn't got that chance to become a, a teacher as his early vision would have been. Well, when he came back, yeah, I think this was the question, what was going to happen next? And I think it soon became clear that that wasn't, he wasn't going to go off to university, he wasn't going to become a teacher. But I think over the subsequent years, he thought, actually, the thing is to draw upon that experience of being in a sanatorium, of reading voraciously, of paying attention and noticing the world, and actually applying that to his own landscape. And that's what he did. 14 St George's Terrace, where we were before, became home and became his world, if you like. And he was beginning to try and work out his own poetic voice. Poetry, poetry is his passion. He wanted to be seen as a poet. So let's pass it forward a little bit to Christmas of 1934, where he wrote a poem which crystallised his thinking a great deal. That's true. And I said before that the time in the sanatorium was a formative moment in his life, and of course it was, but I think another equally formative moment was the reading of this poem, and that poem was T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. Nicholson was absorbing himself, immersing himself in the poetic world. He'd been reading all sort of the great canonical writers. He'd read his Wordsworth, and he knew his Wordsworth inside out. But it was this reading of this poem, so it was, what, 1934? The Wasteland had been published 12 years previously, it was what turned him on to more or less contemporary poetry. Reading The Wasteland was a quasi-religious experience for him. It changed everything. He wasn't quite sure what it was or what to do with it, but he did know that he liked it. And it was making language and making poetry strange. And this is what really appealed to him. Early on then, so in the 1930s, he was really inspired by Eliot. And he later on he'd say, actually, maybe he was like, trying to imitate Eliot too much. But I think most, if not all, writers go through this phase where there's a writer who really appeals to them and they want to write in a similar vein. So early on in the 1930s, when Nicholson is starting to write poetry seriously, it's Eliot-type poetry that he's trying to write. But instead of writing about the cosmopolitan experiences that often Eliot writes about, he's writing about Cumbria. He's writing about West Cumbria. While the sun is still lighting the wind turbines on the far fell side across the estuary, we'll move along through this wasteland and we'll consider a bit more of the story. It's lovely walking around this space. You can understand why we see youngsters from the town wandering across here and people taking their dogs down to the shoreline. It's just a contrast with being among the terraces and it's it's what Norman Nicholson understood about places. Now he did in 1944 I think it was get a first works published that's right, Mark. 1944 was his breakthrough moment in terms of poetry. His first full collection, 
Five Rivers was published by Faber and Faber. And so it was taken on by T.S. Eliot. This poet that he'd really admired, whose poetry enchanted, intoxicated him in the previous decade, took him onto that list. And that was an enormous deal. So Nicholson was only in his late 20s, about to turn 30. And it was a list which had people like W.H. Jordan and Louis McNeese. And Nicholson was joining them. And in that first collection, Five Rivers, it begins to sort of establish his own poetic landscape. And at that point, it's not really Millham. It's much more the West Coast, but West Coast more generally, so Cleetermore, Egremont, places further north feature. And for the first couple of collections, Millham does feature, but sparingly, it's not really sort of focusing on the town. Instead, he's thinking about that industrial landscape of the West Coast. He's thinking about geology. He's thinking about theology too, thinking about his own faith and what, what that might mean throughout his life he continued to be published by um, Faber and Faber and he was occupying this literary world so in one sense like we said before he was physically circumscribed in the house in St George's Terrace for a lot of time but on the page he was elsewhere Over a course of time certain key themes start to move into his output so he has two collections published by Faber and Faber, one in 44, one in 48. And then his third collection, the Potgeranium, is published in 1954. And that is probably the poem that he's most well known for. And he appears in a lot of anthologies, the Potgeranium. And that is about him being circumscribed, to keep using that word again, in Milham, but actually using that stasis, if you like, making poetry out of it. He doesn't need to sort of travel the world to make poetry. He can look at the pot geranium, the potted plant, which sits in his window of his, of his attic room, and he can find the world there. The world comes to him, if you like. The universe in a pot plant. Exactly, exactly that. <laughs> the poem, the pot geranium, which is this sort of signature poem, ends with these lines. My ways are circumscribed, confined as a limpet to one small radius of rock. Yet I eat the equator, breathe the sky, and carry the great white sun in the dirt of my fingernails. And I think this becomes almost a manifesto for him, really, and for the poetry that he then goes on to write. And it's from that that I think he begins to explore even more, and he's committed even more to the commonplace and to the everyday. And I don't use those terms negatively or pejoratively. I think, for me, that is what is so great about Nicholson's poetry. And actually, all the writing that I really like is that writers who can take the commonplace and the everyday and try to find some sense of wonder in it. He looks around the landscape around him and tries to document that, notice it, record it, and try to find the poetic language to describe that, whether it be sort of the industrial architecture that was still in the town at that point, or whether it's then the flora and fauna. The commonplace as well was also there increasingly as we get to the later collections in the people of Milham. So for the first few collections, people don't really figure and a lot of critics picked up on that. In the later collections, he starts turning to his own family and his own family stories, but also looks at the everyday life around him. And I just wonder whether that is partly to do with what he saw happening in front of his eyes, really. And this goes back to the decline of the town and deindustrialization. In one sense, we've got this Nicholson as the poet of wonder and wonder in the everyday and trying to notice the small details and the microscopic particularities of everyday. But he's noticing that against the backdrop of the decline in industry and looming deindustrialization. It's the post-industrial picturesque in his mind. Fast forward a little bit to 1968, when the ironworks is cleared away. It's the end of it all. And in fact, beneath my feet, I've got bits of concrete and stone and plants growing here. It's rack and ruin. So how did Norman express that in his poetry? 
there were two incredibly powerful poems that he wrote, which were about the site that we're sort of on right now. And the first was written quite quickly after the closure of the ironworks, and it's called just on the closing of Miller Ironworks in 1968. He's looking back, but he's also wondering about the future of the town. So that's the first poem. The second poem, which was written a bit later, was called On the Dismantling of Miller Ironworks. And he's now looking back on his own childhood. They cut up the carcass of the old ironworks like a fat beast in a slaughterhouse. They shoveled my childhood onto a rubbish heap. And so this is how Nicholson is reflecting. And we get, I think, these really complicated feelings about this because in one sense, the sort of naturalist in Nicholson was worried about the effects of the industry, but also the son of Millen knew how important this industry was to this town and its community and to his family. He had no perception, of course how things could evolve. But certainly, looking at the wild plants now today, you can see they represent a a, a re-blossoming of nature in their setting. Completely. And I think one key aspect of Nicholson's poetry is an interest in cycles. And maybe this goes back to his interest in T.S. Eliot, because that was really key for T.S. Eliot as well. And so maybe there is something, Nicholson, if he was here today, maybe something he didn't have enjoys the right word, but something to celebrate about the way that this site has been reclaimed by the natural world. If we look down at our feet here on the site of the old ironworks, we're looking at the flowers that are poking up between the rocks. And I think there's something incredibly Nicholsonian about that, really, that we can, and Nicholson would admire the sort of expanse of Dudden Estuary, but there's also poetry to be found in the detail at our feet. And I think there would be something that he would find to celebrate about this sort of reclamation of the natural world of this particular site. Here he is in an outpost like Millam. He wrote very passionately and very deeply about this place and this setting in Cumbria. But amongst the people, Faber and Faber poets and literary people, they were very London-centric. Did he feel any kind of inferiority? In the 1950s, he latched onto this idea of the provincial and the provincial poet, and he was using this term really deliberately. If you go back to Dr Johnson's dictionary, his first dictionary, and Dr Johnson himself grew up in provincial Litchfield, he then describes or defines the provincial in his dictionary as that which is rude or unpolished. And so Nicholson takes that on and says, actually, he wants to strip away those pejorative associations of the term provincial and say there's something positive in it. He's saying that he is a provincial writer. And by that, he's saying, I'm not a writer from the metropolitan centre. And he writes exhaustively about this in the 1950s and broadcasts extensively about it. Appears on radio, writes for lots of magazines and journals about this idea of provincialism. His argument is there's actually something universal about being provincial. He connects himself in one of his articles as a writer from Millam with William Faulkner, the great American novelist, and saying that actually both of us are interested in our own particular places, which are perceived as so-called backwards by the literary elite. And he very keenly felt a a writing rejection. really key moment for Nicholson was when he wasn't included in the Oxford Anthology of English Poetry, which was edited by Philip Larkin in the early 70s. And I think he felt some sort of affinity with Larkin, both northern writers. Larkin was there over in Hull, another so-called marginalised place, a place that is geographically on the edges. Nicholson felt that... He was part of this northern cultural landscape, which he felt Larkin was also a part. And so Nicholson, over the time, had always identified with all the northern writers, like Ted Hughes, Basil Bunting, the great modernist poet. I think he thought that Larkin was going to include him in that anthology, and when he wasn't, he felt rejected, really. Can we just move it across to 
perhaps where you came into Norman Nicholson uh, with uh, William Wordsworth, Wordsworth's landscape, the Lake District, Norman Nicholson had a, another view on what it all amounted to. What I find really interesting is that he doesn't reject Wordsworth. I think it would be really easy just to say, oh, well, Wordsworth, what does Wordsworth know? Nicholson doesn't do that, but nor does he valorise Wordsworth. Instead, Nicholson gets into this quite complicated engagement with Wordsworth. He's slightly reverential, but he's also at the same time just wants to reject him. So there's this, this tension, if you like. What I always find interesting is about how that leads Nicholson to think about the Lake District and what does the Lake District actually mean? What are the boundaries of the Lake District? Why are they important and why aren't they important? He looks at the way in which the Lake District has seemingly been defined over time through readings of Wordsworth, how like the Victorians read Wordsworth and how they then thought about setting up the National Trust through thinking about Wordsworth's poetry. And then in the 1940s, when the National Park is set up, Wordsworth's Guide to the Lakes becomes almost like the, the foundational text for the setting up of the National Park, including the boundaries of the National Park. And Nicholson is troubled by this. So we're, we're here in Millen, which was outside the National Park, but he was looking into it, into that space on a daily basis. It's a very basic but a really important question. What is the fundamental difference between the land in which we find ourselves now and that which is a mile down the road? I used to live in Cockermouth. I lived there for three years. And I always thought I had the same thought. You used to go up to Fitz Park and look down in towards Buttermere and thinking there's this imaginary line somewhere between the two and what is that doing and what does that say about the way that we think about landscape and the way that we carve it up and compartmentalise it and Nicholson was thinking about that for much of his writing life and thinking well why is Milham outside and why is this a so-called lesser landscape he was troubled by that and the implications of that he was thinking as a geographer and when he was thinking about this he was thinking about the social flows down valleys and saying that actually there was a ring around the Lake District of market towns like Penrith and Cockermouth and Millham and he was saying these are actually integral to the everyday life of people in the Lake District in inverted commas but these social flows from the rural communities and the valleys out to the market towns he's saying these are so important in binding people together this is what everyday life is predicated on and he's saying the national park boundaries cut across those social flows if you like for him this was nonsense he was a man about town really about this town but about other towns and how they interconnect with a rural setting yeah and Mark, you used the word interconnect, and I think that is so crucial, isn't it? It's the sort of interconnectedness of those communities and saying, for him, the national park boundaries didn't allow for that. Well, that's been a fascinating interlude there, David. I'm loath to leave this spot, but it's become greyer in in the time (laughs) we've been here, and the umbrella that I'm wielding might come to play. But just looking back across the estuary, you get that wonderful feeling of liberty, of being part of something greater... I think we'll march into down. That's a nice little wander through the streets that brought us back to the main thoroughfare by the library, free library it said, brick building, and it led us across the road into the park. I've wandered up with David, the two Davids, up by the bespired church, well, I thought it'd be a great place to come for a couple of reasons. One, we'd get this great view across the Dudden Estuary to the Fells beyond, but with the town in the foreground. But it was also, we, previously we talked about those twin poems about the closure and then the dismantling of Miller Mineworks. The first of those poems on the closing of Miller Mineworks, Nicholson writes, Wandering by the heave of the town park, wondering which way the day will drift. 
And the town park was just very close to where Nicholson was living for all of his life after he returned to Millen from Linford. And it was part of his daily routine. And he had this very strict daily routine because although he returned to Millen and thankfully did not have to go back to the sanatorium, he was still throughout his life. His life was sort of shaped by his fragility, his condition and his relative fragility and the fact that he couldn't, he couldn't walk great distances. So these quite modest daily walks were really important to him. I can see stickle pipe through the trees there. That's not a hell he ever climbed, maybe. Yeah, that would have been too much. But that's what I find really interesting, actually, about Nicholson and the Lake District. We get this sense of the, the fells being sort of seen, like you see here, framed by the trees. For him, it's often framed, the landscape and black coom is framed by the window frame of his own attic room. Can you give a little bit of a picture of Norman in his 30s and 40s? Yeah, so in his 30s, he was writing prolifically. He was also writing extensively for the Times Literary Supplement. So he was reviewing a lot of books. So you can imagine where we were previously at 14 St George's Terrace. A lot of books would be coming into that space and in turn he was reviewing. And so that was a bit of source of income then, that reviewing that he was doing. He was living this literary life in the 30s and 40s and had this national profile. But domestically, it was also a really significant moment. I think he was 40 or early 40s where he married a woman called Yvonne Gardner, who was a teacher at Millam School, who moved to Millam. And Nicholson, as Kathleen Jones talks about in a biography, had a series of romances over the course of his life, but married Yvonne. And so Yvonne came to live in 14 St George's Terrace with Nicholson, but also with his stepmother, who was still alive. And so the three of them lived in that relatively small property. Who did the cooking? It certainly wasn't Norman, <laughs> I can say that. Because, yeah, he talks about the fact that, yeah, he was no great cook. With Yvonne, actually, things opened up because she could drive and Norman couldn't drive, so suddenly he could get out a bit more and could visit places that he maybe had visited, like, when he was a teenager before that he was sent to the sanatorium. So suddenly it was, it was almost like a rediscovery and a discovery of landscapes as well through Yvonne. You mentioned romances... And there was one, actually, that he met at Ellswater. He did, and this was a writer called Kathleen Rain. This was before Yvonne. And again, Kathleen Jones talks about this in her biography about Nicholson's relationship with Kathleen Rain. Some of the early poems, there's this sense of romance at Allswater, and there's some love poems in those early collections. And according to Kathleen Jones, then, sort of Kathleen Rain is the subject of those love poems. She was this great writer. She was really well connected. So this was a different world to the world that Nicholson was inhabiting. Nicholson also spent some time at a place called Cockley Moor overlooking Allswater, which was owned by um, a woman called Helen Sutherland, who was incredibly wealthy and had this property overlooking Allswater. And there she invited the sort of great and good of the cultural world. So Ben and Win- Winifred Nicholson, T.S. Eliot was invited there. She had all these sort of incredibly avant-garde contemporary paintings on the walls and there's this really modernist space inside this building overlooking Gallswater and Nicholson was there with Kathleen Rain. Strange sort of juxtaposition really that he had his day-to-day life here in Millham but occasionally he would pop over well, it's actually it's quite a journey so it's not a case of just popping over but he'd go over to Cockley Moor and to have this very sort of rarefied cultural life which was just yeah a very different world. You talked about his exceedingly prolific period in writing but that didn't last there was a bit of a lull 
There was certainly in terms of his poetry. So his third volume, The Pot Geranium, was published in 54, and there was an 18-year gap between that and the next one, which was um, A Local Habitation in 1972. So he was still writing in that time, and he was writing for journals and writing for the Times Literary Supplement. He was broadcasting. He was writing topographical books. He um, wrote a book, Provincial Pleasures, which I think is a great book by Nicholson, which was a sort of semi-fictionalised account of semi-fictionalised town, which is called Oddborough, which is clearly Millham. A year in the life of that town. So he was writing prose. So he was still writing, but the poetry, as he puts it, sort of dried up. I would just wonder whether one possible explanation is the fact that as ever with Nicholson, he was slightly out of step with what was happening. So in the 50s and the 60s, there was obviously this great explosion of regional poetry and he, maybe he felt that was happening and part of him felt surely that he would have an affinity with that. But these were a younger generation of writers. These were often urban writers and they were often writers who were writing within the context of popular culture and Nicholson wasn't that, really. Well, we'll move through the park towards the church. I think the church spire lures us a little bit, doesn't it, from here? Ha, we haven't been looking at the, uh, the website which tells you exactly where the grave is. We had a wild goose chase looking around the graveyard. I'm trying to find the exact location. Anyway, we've worked our way around by the care home, I think it is. And uh, hey presto, here it is. That's lovely to come upon it. Uh, it's to his wife, Yvonne Edith Nicholson, who died in 1982. And Norman Cornthwaite Nicholson, poet, who died 30th of May, 1987, age 73. Now, we were talking about his latter days. He had a little bit of a flourish, and he still had a bit of energy, even in his latter days. You're right about the way that he was performing later on in life. So after that quite long gap, a long period where he wasn't writing poetry, although he was writing prose, he then published two collections, Local Habitation in 1972, and then his final collection, Sea to the West, in 81. And he was reaching a new audience. And I think there was a sort of a new... The poems were different. The poems had more people in them. And I think there was maybe a warmth and a humanity which wasn't necessarily there in some of the earlier poems. I think also there was a slight change in context in the poetry scene. And by this period, there was a big flourishing scene of... Um, festivals and literary events and readings and this is where Nicholson came into his own in a way this goes back to his early years pre-TB when he was a real child star and child performer here in Millham he was then taking these poems from Millham and going out often just in the north of England but he would go elsewhere I think his last ever reading was down in Cambridge he was a, a real performer and sadly I never saw him perform I know from friends who were friends of Nicholson that he was this great performer and would work the room, really, and would have certain poems that he knew would please crowds. He would have certain jokes, I think jokes which would slightly irritate his wife because his wife knew when they were coming. I think he did get this second or third wind and, he, and yeah, he really enjoyed that performative element. He also had a very distinctive and unique voice and, of course, look. 
he certainly did. Later on in years, he had these sort of fantastic mutton chops, these whiskers, and he was also partial to the odd cravat as well, I think. So you see a lot of the photos where the cravat is worn. Dapper. Dapper, yeah, he was dapper. He was the man about town. He had a very distinctive voice as well. I find the voice quite difficult to describe, really. And to my ear, and as someone who's not Cumbrian, but it's difficult to trace at times the Cumbrian accent. The Cumbrian accent is there, but because he had TB of the larynx, and for a long period of time in the sanatorium, he had to remain silent. And this is why I think voice is so important to him, or was important to him. The voice, like the poetic voice, and on the page, but the poetic voice in performance as well. I think the best thing to get a sense of Nicholson's voice is try and get some recordings of Nicholson reading his own poetry. There was this great South Bank show that Melvin Bragg did on Nicholson in the, in the 80s, towards the end of his life. And again, you get this sense of this slightly gravelly voice. It's very singular and very distinctive. Well, if you can't get Country Stride, get Melvin <laughs> Bragg. Another good Cumbrian. Standing by the grave, could you just talk us through his final few years? As we said when we were up in the park, he found happiness with his wife Yvonne and then there was also sadness when his wife Yvonne um, Gardner became Yvonne Nicholson who then died in um, 1982. She was just 61 years of age and died, died of cancer. This was incredibly traumatic for Norman and then he had a period of several years where it was difficult. Um, he needed help around the house. He was frail he did have like friends who would come and visit him in Millham and like there was a younger poet from Liverpool called Matt Simpson who talked about like coming to visit Nicholson in his later years and enjoying the odd whiskey in 14 St George's Terrace he was (laughs) yeah Yvonne died in 1982 and Norman died five years later on the 30th of May 1987 aged 73 years and it's I think as we look at the grave here, there's lines from the grave, and, I've, and it's I'm finding this quite difficult because there's lines on the grave where it's from one of his last poems called Sea to the West. And the lines that I'm reading in front of me now, let our eyes at the last be blinded, not by the dark, but by dazzle. It's interesting on the on the grave, it's the, the original poem says, let my eyes at the last be blinded. But on this shared grave, it says, let our eyes at the last be blinded, not by the dark, but by dazzle. And this is about a poem, Sea to the West, which I think is one of his greatest poems which is about living in this sort of coastal community it's about the light fading over the Irish Sea and I must admit it's also got personal significance for me because I mentioned my dad earlier on and I actually read this poem at my dad's funeral and I just think it's a a beautiful poem which is about this particular place is about rootedness and about um, a sense of belongingness in this particular place it's a melancholy poem, but there is also this sense of hope, isn't there? Let our eyes at the last be blinded, not by the dark, but by dazzle. So, really, what do you feel his legacy might be, and how does it carry forward? Well, it's, I think it's always difficult after a writer dies um, to think what is their legacy going to be, because there goes through this period where readers and critics take stock of that writer's life and see it in totality. Maybe that is especially difficult with Nicholson, because for certain periods of his life anyway, he was, as we've talked about, was slightly on the margins of the literary mainstream. I've been coming to Millen for about 18 years now, and... The first time I came was for the launch of the Norman Nicholson Society. But since that time, the Norman Nicholson Society has done a tremendous job, I think, trying to promote Nicholson's work, trying to celebrate it. And under the current chair, Charlie Lambert, there's a website which is a brilliant resource. 
Yes, well, for, for listeners who particularly wish to get a, a sense of his poetry, are, are there one or two that you'd actually pinpoint as an introduction to his writing? If the people can get a hold of the selected poems of Nicholson, there was a few editions, but the selected poems, um, one that was published in the 1980s, is a really good sort of uh, introduction to Nicholson's poetry. I'd recommend any of the topographical prose books, um, so from sort of Cumberland and Westmoreland in the 1940s to the Greater Lakeland in the 60s. If people are interested in prose and landscape writing and writing about Cumbria, I think they're hard to beat, really. Have you an absolute favourite poem? I think I'm going to cheat, if that's OK, and say to as the train goes by, probably mm-hmm. heading to Lancaster. Um, I'm going to choose To the River Dudden, which was one of the early poems by Nicholson, which is this poem where he sort of takes and tackles Wordsworth head-on, and it's a beautiful poem about the River Dudden and about, about Millam at the end of the Dudden estuary, and it's about a time, and it is also about Wordsworth. And I'm also going to say the poem that we mentioned a few minutes ago and from which we've got text in front of us, which is the late poem, Sea to the West, in Nicholson's final collection, which is a poem about time again. It's about the transience of things, but I think ultimately it's also a poem about hope and the wonder at being dazzled by the world. journey's end we're back at the tesco car park uh, in the heart of millam uh, very interesting mark a bit of a diversion from our usual kind of landscapes here on country stride but a journey of discovery nevertheless on a hugely important figure in cumbrian culture and one i will have pause now to read up on he had a view on the landscape that i knew was important and establish this notion of provincial writing and perception. Yes, he's not somebody you think of as much as one should do when thinking about the literature of Lakeland, but clearly, not just locally, but nationally and internationally, hugely important personality, Uh, not only in his lifetime, but increasingly uh, as the years pass. Yeah, and our guest today was spot on. I'm grateful that David should come and uh, give us uh, the benefit of his passion for this particular personality. Yeah, he brought it to life beautifully. And a few things just to say, um, Mark. David did highlight Charlie Lambert, the current chair of the Norman Nicholson Society, who very helpfully put us in touch with a few people. Um, Some of the plans didn't work out, sadly, but we're grateful to him. The Norman Nicholson Society, you can look it up online, There's a fundraiser there to buy the house, which I think has been going on for a little while. And there's also some trail apps that they've devised. Uh, So you can download an app to your phone and follow it on a walk around Millen, which we kind of semi-did today, but semi-didn't. We created our own little walk to suit the time that we had. But well worth doing, I think. And I believe also that has an introduction by Melvin Bragg, who we did mention earlier on. Other than that, it's the usual housekeeping. Uh, If you enjoyed this podcast, number 61, you can find the 60 previous episodes at www.countrystride.co.uk. We're on social media. We're on social media, Facebook and Twitter. 
country tried one. I say we're on social media at the moment, Mark. You're actually not on social media because you've been temporarily suspended. Yeah, well, I don't know if that's true. I certainly can't go back on. I, uh, I'll have to temper my views. Yes, you will have to temper your views. Other than that, we've got a couple of very exciting podcasts lined up. We're heading to Wasdale with one of uh, Lakeland's most famous fell runners. Is that enough of a clue? Oh, that's it. We won't give you any more of a clue other than, say, Joss Naylor. All right, yeah. And um, You're heading down to Grange over Sand soon. Yes, that's a good point. We're going to the south coast to uh, soak up the sunshine and the, the Lido. So actually, again, not too far away from here. I think that's us done for today's Country Stride from the Tesco in Millham. And actually, I must say, Mark, I've enjoyed my visit to Millham. I hadn't been before. I had a wonderful lunch at a little cafe on the railway concourse. The old railway station has been converted into a little cafe. I had a veggie burger, chips, and a big salad, uh, and three cups of tea for £9.50. Value for money and a good setting. Millam needs your custom, and it's a lovely little town, full of bubbling energy. Lovely. I've really enjoyed it here. That's us saying goodbye for now, and see you on the next Country Stride.